last week we got to, uh, and well, we considered the uh, the prophecy in Genesis 49, and we also got onto the Mosaic Covenant, didn't we? And remember that the Mosaic Covenant, unlike the other divine covenants, is bilateral. Now, what I mean by bilateral is that two parties entered into it. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 24, you'll see there towards the end of the chapter that uh, Moses, this is recorded by the writer of Hebrews as well, that Moses calls upon the people to enter into the covenant and the stipulations of the covenant, which are from chapter 20 through to chapter 24. And uh, the reaction of the, of the people is that, yeah, we'll do it. Um, we've, we see here in verse um, 6, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. That's probably everything that's been given from chapter 20 up until this time. And read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Now, what that is them entering into an oath of the covenant. Do you see? God says, I'll bless you and do all of that stuff. Um, that he's promised to do. You'll be my people and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and so on. And um, they've said, well, we'll be obedient. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And uh, he also sprinkles the book and everything. So, um, what we find then is that this is a bilateral covenant. Now, that spells trouble. Because whenever <coughs> God makes an agreement with man, it's going to fail. Because man is going to mess up. Guaranteed. Now, which is what they do. Chapter 35, uh, Moses is up the mountain. And meanwhile, flash to uh, the bottom of the mountain and the people are moaning and groaning and wondering where Moses has got to and uh, what about the gods of Egypt and so on and who are we supposed to worship? Where's this God that we're supposed to worship? Because in Egypt we had gods, we, had, we could see the gods, you know, there was Horus and Seb and uh, all the rest of them. But this God, does, we, there's no image of him. So Aaron cast those, uh, you know, says they will take your earrings off and stuff and then um, makes these two golden calves and they start worshipping and then they, the worship turns into a, uh, a really crazy charismatic service and, um, <clears throat> and uh, Moses then comes down the mount and sees what's going on, sees the idolatry smashes the tables of the covenant signifying the breaking of the covenant. They've broken the covenant. Right there. Um, now, of course, God does not have to relinquish his obligations, which he doesn't. 
But they broke the covenant and then they kept on breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and the job of the prophets, as we'll see next time, is to, rec- uh, to call people back to their covenant oaths, to the law of God. That's one of their jobs. Uh, but it's a, it's a pointless, futile task because Israel's just not up to it. And it's not just Israel. It's any people that God would have chosen. We'd have all messed up. So a bilateral covenant is between God and man is always going to be uh, temporal. Do you see? Always. It's going to always have to um, be replaced some, at some point. It, it doesn't have uh, the, uh, the inner workings within it to keep it going. It's just the goodwill of, of one side of that bilateral agreement that keeps it in force. And that's God saying, okay, well, we'll I'll still call you back to it. Okay? But it doesn't work. Neither, of course, if we go into the Old Testament, uh, sorry, the New Testament teaching on this in, uh, in Romans and so on, we see that the law doesn't make um, anyone perfect anyway. I mean, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Um, it, it doesn't make anyone perfect. It, doesn't, it can't cleanse the conscience. It can't do any work on the inside. It can't make you right with God. It can't take away sins. The sacrificial system was not designed to take away sins itself. Um, it only was efficacious on the basis of God's grace. And I can't go into a big theological thing about that, but, but I hope you can see that the law itself could not make anyone righteous. Do we need proof text on this or are we okay? I mean, the book of Hebrews. Uh, chapters 7 through 10. <clears throat> so, uh, that's why this was temporary. Now, the reason that this is important is because of the new covenant that we'll come into. The new covenant is meant to replace this one. And the new covenant is not bilateral. If it was bilateral, it again would fail. But the new covenant is, again, it's a unilateral covenant. Um, there, there is a, a slight stipulation to that, or, you know, something that I, can, I should add to that, but I'm not going to add it right now. But basically, unless God changes the heart, mankind falls flat on, the fa- on his face. That's just the way it is. So what's the point of the Mosaic Covenant then? Why make it? I mean, if you knew when you made an agreement with somebody they were going to break it five minutes down the road or five years down the road, why would you make it with them? Well, there must be maybe other functions. Do you see? Uh, Remember that God called Israel, chapter 19 of Exodus, to be a special, a peculiar people for him. That's used several times in the Pentateuch. And it's important language. Uh, 
they are to be a, 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 a separated nation among the other nations. And, uh, in fact, if we look at Exodus 19 here quickly, let's just uh, point this out again. Um, God here is saying, you shall be, verse 6, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you see? And verse 5 says, uh, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. And that uh, idea of special treasure is, uh, I think I, I said this earlier, it's like a wedding ring, you know? I mean, something that you just don't want to lose. It's, it's really special. Um, so, um, God sees Israel as a nation apart. Do you see that? Above all people. It doesn't mean that, that he's negating the other people. It just means that Israel is different. Okay, if that's going to be the case and God's got a plan for Israel and God's not a wishful thinker hoping the best that Israel will keep the covenant but he knows they really won't. And he has all these plans for them that he knows are not going to work out. Um, then what it means is that, is that even though God knows that Israel's going to fail, his plans are not going to get thwarted. Uh, God, when he said, you're going to be a peculiar treasure to me and you're going to be a kingdom of priests uh, and uh, holy people and witness to the nations, that's what Israel's going to do. But he's going to have to make them ready to do that. He's going to have to equip them to do that and they can't do that under the terms of the law, not the Mosaic law. Nobody's saved through the Mosaic law. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. But, um, so the the uh, the point of the Mosaic law then is is uh, at least one of the major things that it does is that it makes Israel available at a future date to participate in the original plan of God but now as qualified to do it. You see? Does that make sense? Um, now, in order for Israel to be there, they have to stay there. They have to have continuity. They can't be lost. They can't be mingled among the nations. Uh, they were called as a, as a peculiar people. They were, they were created by God from Abraham. Um, and here they are, this special people, with all these promises. Now, what's undergirding, call it the MC, so what's undergirding this, that, that, uh, that means there's, uh, there's a, a stability to Israel, a durability to it. The durab, uh, were you about to answer? All right. The durability, okay, is not obviously connected with their performance. We're okay with that, yes? Exodus 35, the book of Numbers. But the Mosaic Covenant is connected 
let's have a look how it's connected. We'll go to Numbers, uh, we'll go to Exodus 35 and let's have a look here and uh, maybe you can give me the answer. Uh, Exodus 35. Numbers 35 would be not right. <laughs> um, so Exodus 35, you know the story. Um, was it 35? It's not 35, is it? Uh Okay, give me the wrong reference. Uh, was it 34? Okay, I'm looking for... Um, I'm looking for... Oh, the golden calf, 32, sorry, excuse me. 32. Sorry, sometimes I get a number in my head and it just sticks until I try and find it in the Bible and then I realise that it doesn't exist. And then, I, you know, panic seizes me until I find it. Um, so you know what happens, yeah? Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go, get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And so... Uh, God's wrath is against them. Look at verse 10. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. I will make of you a great nation. Um, God was willing to start again with Moses. But look what Moses does. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord... He uses the term Yahweh there, which is that uh, now a covenant name, according to uh, chapter six and verse three. Let me get that. Uh, yeah, six three. Just write that down. It's a covenant name now. and said, uh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? God said to Moses, you brought them out. Moses says, no God, you brought them out. Do you see? See what he's doing? With the great power and with a mighty hand, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them on the face of the earth. Turn your fierce, from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Now look, verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, or he actually calls them Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. What does he plead? He pleads the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see that? He pleads the unilateral covenant 
the Abrahamic covenant, which is an unconditional covenant. It says, on the basis of, any unconditional, of the unconditional covenant you've made, I know they've broken this one, but don't destroy them. So, the, the usefulness of the Mosaic covenant is based on the permanence of the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see that? So, even though it's actually, because it's a a law covenant and the law can only condemn, it it has a great utility. (coughs) Use. Now, by the way, just a little side here. I hate pragmatism. Okay? Hate it, hate it, hate it. Uh, Which is just another form of uh, utilitarianism. Okay? Uh, but uh, pragmatism is if it works it's right okay it's the American philosophy okay if it works it's right it's not Americans don't ask is it right okay they ask does it work okay well it might work and be of the devil it may not work and be of God okay it's got to be right that's the thing now but but the utility of the Mosaic Covenant does uh, two things. The first thing it does is that it keeps um, Israel uh, different. Israel stays different. You know, they do the circumcision bit. There are other... um, other peoples did circumcision in the ancient world, but they didn't do it the way that Israel did it. Okay, so, so uh, some of the reliefs of Israel going into captivity, into Assyria and so on, um, you know, they're a little bit... Um, well, it shows them as Israelites, you see? Um, and also, they didn't, because they had the law and the, and the temple and the, and, and the tabernacle before that, it kind of kept them in on themselves, you see? Now, even though they, they made a big hash of it, and they did kind of start messing around with some of the other peoples, um, it, they never got so bad that they forgot they were Israelites. Now, later on, you know, at the time of... Um, of uh, um, Jezebel and Ahab and that bunch um, the, the southern kingdom they kind of they introduced gods and goddesses Asherah poles and so on they've actually found these things and they worshipped other gods as, alongside of Yahweh that's where you get these uh, unbelieving archaeologists uh, saying oh Israel there were polytheists well, the Bible says they were polytheists at that time, okay? But they shouldn't have been. Um, you know, the book, uh, Did Yahweh Have a Wife? Maybe some of you are familiar with that, William Deaver. Anyway, um, even though Israel did that, they defected, uh, still, they were Jews. And that perpetuity uh, and that, that separation has kept the Jews, Jews. Do you see? 
So Isaiah 1, Malachi 1 and 2, if you want some references, there are many of them, Ezekiel 16, um, that talk about the way that Israel went away, Hosea 1 through 3 and so on. Yet, at the same time, it, it kept Israel different. All right? So that's a very, very important um, part of, of what the law did. Um, the second part we may get to in a minute, but uh, I want to um, I want you to, to notice here that the Abrahamic covenant is not overwhelmed by the Mosaic covenant and cannot be overwhelmed by the Mosaic covenant. Just because they break the law doesn't mean that God can't give them the land. God obligated himself to give them the land. Now, he doesn't have to give them the land right now. As it turns out, he did after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. But um, but he does have to at some point. He does have to make them a great nation. And it, through them, he has to bless the nations of the earth because those are the three prongs of the Abrahamic covenant. Moses pleads it with God. So, they can mess up here, but this is intact. What's the application to us? Even though this is not a course on application, I'll bring it in sometimes. The application uh, for us is that uh, God has made a covenant with us through the gospel and we mess up. Don't we? Big time foul up all the time. Um, but God will still uphold his side. Okay? You'll still get to heaven. You'll still get to glory. And you can plead, even when you, when you mess up, in fact, you should, I should, plead the gospel when you're, you're repenting. Say, God, I know, I confess, I've done it again, but I plead the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. Do you see? It's not because of me, it's because of you, God. That maybe give you a, a, a refreshed understanding of grace, how overwhelming grace is. So, <clears throat> I said there were two things. You, uh, the, it makes Israel uh, separate. Um, and then the other thing that the law does is that it, it provides a sacrificial approach. You know, a cult through the Levitical system. <clears throat> the sacrificial approach is absolutely essential if Israel is to be God's people because without that God cannot dwell with them. Um, they are sinners. Their sin has to be confessed. It has to be owned as a nation on the day of atonement. They have to own their sin. And uh, what's interesting about the day of atonement is in uh, Leviticus uh, 18 
somewhere like that. Uh, I'll be looking for it while I'm talking. And uh, 16. What's important about the Day of Atonement is that uh, God said, you are to afflict yourselves on that day. Now, that meant that there was, uh, that, that just turning up with the sacrifice and, and standing there and watching the high priest go in wasn't good enough. There had to be some soul searching that went on with the individuals. There had to be uh, a, a, a feeling sorry for the sins that, that you had committed and that, that you had been part of as a citizen of God's people, do you see? And everyone that afflicted themselves, they were the ones that God would forgive. Okay? Now, there were an individual sacrificial system uh, things going on all the time. You know, there were, there were uh, sin offerings and burnt offerings and all that sort of stuff was going on. But the main one was the Day of Atonement. That's the main one that's, that's focused by the writer of the Hebrews, by the way. He, he does talk about the other sacrifices somewhat, but he's mainly focused on the Day of Atonement, okay, for the nation of Israel. So the sacrificial approach, they were sinners, there's always a schism between sin and God. The approach is through uh, someone confessing their sin and without the uh, letting of blood, there is no remission of sin, okay, well, Leviticus 16, 18. Um, very important understanding. One thing I was thinking, Paul, about if the scriptures that believe in that two people lose their salvation, they must not understand the covenant. They must not understand. No, I mean, it really depends. Yeah. Yeah, it really depends on, on, there are different approaches to that, like I said before. Uh, you take the Nazarene approach, the holiness approach to it, then you're right. Because they, they make it definitely contingent on works. If you take it to the, uh, the way that, that, um, uh, you know, the traditional Wesleyan approach, for example, John Wesley's view, um, maybe Arminius's view, then they wouldn't say that. What they would say is that they would say, well, yeah, but you could deny God. You could repudiate. That's a very different action, they would say. So I think there is a difference between those two approaches. Yeah, I don't take either one, but I think there is a difference. And one of them is, is uh, susceptible to that criticism. The other one, I don't think, not so much. Uh, this is the text. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Very important. So, there has to be blood because life for a life. That was, that's what was going on. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. Um, but as the writer of the Hebrews says, you know, that the, the, the blood of bulls and goats, you know, which was offered daily for sins, they could never take away sin. 
So what was the point? This is a very interesting question. Especially if you follow the Bible up until this point and you don't get ahead of yourself. Um, certain things have happened. You know, in Exodus chapter 12, you have the Passover, you know, where you daub. This is supposed to mean me daubing the doors with blood, okay? The lentils and so on. So, um, you have a lamb that's sacrificed for a family. You have no um, <clears throat> yeast. What's the old word for yeast? Yeast. Um, leaven, thank you. Now, leaven in the household, leaven to the Jew uh, is talking about sin, okay? Uh, that's important. And so leaven was to be taken out, swept out and everything. The lamb was to be sacrificed. It was to be eaten there and hurriedly with shoes on your feet and all that stuff. And uh, the doorposts were to be, and lintel were to be spread with the blood of the lamb. Uh, and then the, the destroying angel uh, would not come into the house. And the idea is because God would pass over himself. And the idea is that God is standing there stopping the angel from coming in. Okay, and so uh, they have that idea very firmly fixed in their minds. They also had the idea from Genesis 22:18 about a seed coming that was uh, connected to the seed of Genesis um, 3:15, the promise given to Eve. The, the seed of the woman that crushed would crush the serpent's head. But please understand that as far as uh, as far as we understand from the details of Scripture, the the skull crushing seed of the woman was not necessarily a savior of mankind's sins. He was a, uh, a del- no, sorry, he was a, um, I'm tired, I'm not thinking of the word. He defeated ser- uh, the serpent. Yes, he, so he avenged God over the serpent. But that's different than saying, yeah, and uh, he will also die for your sins. Do you see? That's not in that promise. That's going to be built up through progressive revelation. But we know this guy's coming. And uh, we know that in uh, you know, 2218, again, the, there's this uh, idea of the seed, this person that's going to come and is going to be in the lineage of Abraham. And uh, chapter 49, as we saw, is he's going to come through Judah. Yes? The scepter will not depart from Judah until uh, he comes to whom it belongs, or until Shiloh comes. Yes? And that's what we we looked at. So now we've got uh, a picture emerging of a king coming from Judah who eventually will take hold of the kingship and will perpetuate it. It will be his forever. Uh, we also went to, uh, kind of jumped ahead and we went to Numbers 24 and we saw that Balaam prophesied this, a scepter 
Well, not, you know, a star. I see him, but not now and all that stuff, yeah? And talks about a scepter and so on. Uh, in the last days. So this king is coming and he's obviously going to deliver Israel and rule over Israel. Um, and, but you, it, it, there's nothing yet to intimate a connection between sin and this individual. Do you see? The connection between the lamb and this deliverer is not going to be made until a bit later on. The, the, the uh, two things are going to converge in on this person. And that's often how you see things in Scripture. Um, the plan of God, if I can jump a little bit ahead here, the plan of God for Israel and the plan of God for the church also converge in this one person, Jesus Christ, but it doesn't mean that the plans converge. Um, the plan of God in the first coming of Christ merges with the plan of God in the second coming of Christ, but the two belong together. Do you see? You can't say everything's fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, or even most things are fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. They're actually not. It's a huge error to say that. All right. Now, later, what we can do, of course, on, in hindsight, is that we can do things like this, you know, and we can... Uh, we can look at the lamb and the lamb, the innocent dying for the guilty. And, you know, when Isaiah writes Isaiah 53, we can really start to put things together, can't we? Yes, but that hasn't happened yet. We're not in Isaiah. Isaiah's not even born yet. We're still in the Pentateuch. And so, um, all we have to go on then is this sacrificial approach and this, this differentiation and the bedrock of the Abrahamic covenant that even though this one is messed up, this still has utility to, in, to make sure that this can come through to fruition. All right, I'm sorry if I waffled about that a bit. Um, then we can move on now. So you okay with that? Um, I was trying to think of something else to say. <clears throat> so I'm not going to do a great deal in um, in uh, uh, the other books, but I do want to call attention to uh, something in the book of Numbers. So if you'll turn there again. Uh, let's see. Let's go to chapter 25. So, in Numbers 25, uh, Balaam's discovered that he's getting really unpopular with his employer because all of his attempts to curse Israel are backfiring. 
so he dreams up, and it's not particularly set out that this is Balaam's uh, ploy, but later on it, it becomes known as the doctrine of Balaam in the book of Revelation and in Jude. Um, that this is what Balaam did. He thought, well, if I can't uh, prophesy against them, then what I can do is I can encourage them to mingle uh, and fornicate with these people and we'll just mess the seed up that way, you see. Then God will come and smite them. That's the idea. Of course, that's what happened. So, Numbers 25 records that. And you recall that uh, that uh, uh, what happened is that the people of Israel went out to the women of Moab and one of them, a guy called Zimri, brings in this woman of Moab. And what does he do? He brings her in right in front of the elders of Israel. Isn't this stunning to you? This is the generation that came out of Egypt. This is the generation that saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. This is the generation that walked through the Red Sea. This is the generation that ate manna. This is... If you, if you say, I cannot understand why people, or how people can be like this, how people can thumb their noses at God, how people can ignore God. There isn't a logical explanation. But just understand the sinfulness of sin. Here's a guy who epitomizes what sin is. Okay? And so he has no problem in parading this woman in front of the elders of Israel and going into his tent and obviously, you know, for you know what reason, in front of the whole elders of Israel, Moses included. And um, meanwhile, what's going on, we find out, is that God is smiting, as Balaam planned, he's smiting the people who are doing this. I believe it's 24,000 people are killed by a plague. Verse 9. 24,000 people. So Phineas, who is the son of Eleazar, he's the grandson of Aaron. Phineas sees what's, what happens and let's read what he does. Verse 7. He rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. Verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. He was going to go through the whole pack of them. Therefore, say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an what? Everlasting priesthood. Because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. 
Hold on, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. An everlasting priesthood? Just a minute, God. Haven't you read the New Testament? Haven't you read the book of Hebrews? How can there be an everlasting priesthood given to a Levite like Phineas? But by the way, it's not an everlasting high priesthood. That would be a contradiction of the book of Hebrews. But it is an everlasting priesthood. Note that. So what we have is a covenant here by God. Now what's Phineas got to do to enter to, to do anything for this covenant? What's he got to do? Nothing, nada. So God has just um, He's just made another covenant here. It's a unilateral covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. Now, sure, the uh, the Hebrew word alarm um, can mean uh, a perpetuity of generations. In other, it doesn't necessarily mean infinity. Okay, but it means a jolly long time. I'll tell you that. How do we know that? Psalm 106. Turn there. Olam. O-L-A-M. Yes. It's the Hebrew word that's used there. Uh, For everlasting. Yeah, that's the word it translates. Okay. Psalm 106 is one of those psalms that deals with the high points, or low points, of Israel's history. Verse 28 says this, They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. They were doing all sorts of stuff. Thus they provoked him, God, to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. See that? That's the psalmist and he's writing good 500 years plus after the event. According to the psalmist, it's still in play. So, understand here what God has committed himself to. He's committed himself to um, uh, an everlasting priesthood of Levites. But, particular Levites in this one, um, sons or descendants of Phineas. Now, can't go into this a great deal. We will come back to it. But I think it's First Chronicles 24. Somebody wants to turn there. Uh, 
talks about Zadok. Do you remember Zadok? Uh, at the time of Adonijah's um, usurpation of the throne of David, or trying to, remember that uh, Adonijah tried to make himself king and Joab joined him over Solomon. Solomon was, uh, was uh, David's choice in 2 Kings. Uh, no, 1 Kings. Yeah, 1 Kings. And um, Abiathar, who was the high priest, defected and joined Adonijah. Zadok kept with David and Solomon. So David said to Abiathar, go to your own village, you know, but you're, you and your posterity, you're not in the high priesthood anymore. Okay? And uh, that line uh, petered out. Now, Zadok was from the line of Phineas. We're going to see when we get to Ezekiel and the weird temple vision and so on at the end of that book, we're going to see that God makes a distinction between the Zadokites and the other Levites. Very interesting. There's no distinction made between um, the Zadokites and other Levites in the Mosaic temple and the Mosaic sacrificial system but there is in Ezekiel's temple. Now that should begin to put a thought into your minds about the fact that Ezekiel's temple is, you know, has some differences between it and the Mosaic temple and the, the Mosaic cult system, which we'll explore in the next course. Now, uh, Numbers chapter, I think it's chapter 18... Olam just, it means a perpetuity of time. A jolly long time. Okay? Not necessarily for infinity. Not necessarily, no. Uh, if you want to, uh, let's, let's look at Psalm 105 to get another idea of that, okay? So go to Psalm 105, which deals with the Davidic covenant. Oh, the Abrahamic Covenant, sorry. Uh, look at verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Do you see that? Now, um, what I mean, what it's saying there is it's not necessarily saying what I mean is a thousand generations. Because again, a thousand generations is just a figure of speech for perpetuity. But I hope that you can see that it can qualify forever. But it, a thousand generations is a lot of time. So basically, in, on man's timeline, it might as well be forever. But on God's timeline, yes. there is. Yes. It, it's more finite. Yes. Uh, chapter 18. Um, if I can find this here. Uh, 
Look at verse um, 18. Is that my numbers 18? 19. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you, that's the Levites, and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Now that's written to the Levites. Do you see that? Uh, Numbers 18, verse 19. Do you see that? So, there's this covenant with Phineas, but and this is uh, 25, Numbers 25, but then there's also this covenant of salt with Levites generally in uh, Numbers 18. And it's again, it's, it's perpetual. It's, it's really often missed, and I understand why. Um, but if you read the commentators like Gordon Wenham and other people on numbers, they, you, they go into what the covenant of salt is a little bit. Nobody really knows. But what is salt? What's the thing that salt does? Preserves. It preserves. And so the covenant of salt is made with the Levites to preserve them. Do you see that? So, this appears to be, then, it's easily passed over, but it's a covenant that God makes to preserve the Levites. What for? Read, not today, read Ezekiel, read Malachi. As I said, in the Ezekiel temple, you have Zadokites and then you have Levites, but they're separated. The Levites can't approach to God. They can minister around in the precincts, but they can't approach to God. Only the Zadokites can do that. It's interesting. You thinking here? Are you, any questions on this one? Oh yeah, in the prophets, yeah. Yeah. But it's there. Do you want me to well let's let's just kind of drive it home a little bit for you. Go to uh Jeremiah. Thirty three. You're going to find that Jeremiah 33 is very important to me. Um, we'll just um, we'll just read it here. One second here. Trying to cut corners a bit. Look at verse uh, 14. I'm going to read down. 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing that I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, that becomes an important refrain in the prophets. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. The branch metaphor becomes important. He, he's a person, shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah is singled out will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. The dwelling safely is an extremely important uh, phrase in the prophets. And this is the name by which she, Jerusalem, will be called the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. What covenant's that? We haven't covered it yet, but you know what it is. What is it? The Davidic covenant, Yeah. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings to sacrifice continually. What? What covenant's that? Priestly? Yeah, it's the priestly covenant. Do you see? And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will be not day and night in their season... You have to be kind of smart here. What covenant's that? Noahic. Very good. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a, a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sand of the sea measured... Hold on. What covenant's that? Abrahamic. Do you see how they mix, he's mixing them up? So I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Uh, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, and I love quoting this to replacement theologians, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off? That's what replacement theology teaches in one way or another. You know, in a wholesale way as God's all through with Israel or in a nice politically correct way of saying the church is a new Israel. Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before them. That's what all supersessionism says. It doesn't matter whether it's the nice, genteel supersessionism, supersessionism or replacement theology of the modern evangelical scholars who don't like saying, oh, no, we're not replacement theologians. Oh no, we're not anti-Israel. Would you believe Israel's going to be a nation in perpetuity? I need to not say that when I'm tired. Um, Oh no, I don't believe that. Well, what does God say? Nation, he says. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with the day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of the heaven and earth, is that a covenant? No. What's that refer to? The ordinances of heaven and earth. What does that refer to? The original creation. He doesn't call it a covenant. He calls it ordinances. Okay? Okay? Then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Abrahamic covenant. Do you see? Now, why have I spent time focusing on that? Uh, I've kind of jumped quite a bit ahead here, but I've done it for the sake of this priestly covenant idea. Can you see? This is Jeremiah, uh, 6th century BC. He's a long time after the book of Numbers. Uh, I'm not very good at math, but it's somewhere around 800 years. Not changed. The outlook's still the same. Israel's about to go into captivity. God hasn't changed his tune. Um, one more. I've got to look here quickly to find that. It's in Ezekiel. Um, Chapter, let's, let's look at chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Uh, actually, we'll look at 34 first. Ezekiel 34. Um, this is where Ezekiel is going after the... Um, the pastors, the shepherds who are not feeding the flock. So he's going to raise up a shepherd himself. Okay? Uh, Verse 19. As for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. Because you have pushed with the side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad, therefore I will save my flock, not all Israel's Israel, and they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep, Israel and Israel. Okay. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing and it's not written to the church. It actually means rain. Then the trees who need, that need rain of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Uh, there's uh, a, a, a amazing produce and productivity in the land, the ground, the earth, the trees and, and so on, Yes? Uh, the Noahic covenant is made with the whole earth. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them. Noahic covenant, beasts. But they shall dwell safely and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land and so on and so forth. Now go to chapter 36. Um, 
we will study these chapters in more detail when we uh, are in the next course, but chapter 36. <clears throat> and we'll uh, start here from uh, where well, he goes after them in verse 16, okay? And says that they defected and they profaned his name. He says that a number of times. But look at, uh, we'll go, go from chapter 36, verse 22, and I'm going to read down. Notice what the context is, what you think it is. Um, the prediction is, notice the elements that are involved here. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, his reputation, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes, sanctified in you, yes? For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is not a proof text for baby sprinkling. Although this is the proof text for baby sprinkling, actually. This is the one they use. I mean, they don't make it applicable to Israel in the kingdom, so it's got to be good for something, hasn't it? So they make it useful for sprinkling babies. And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. What's he talking about? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's what he's talking about. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then... When you're regenerated, Israel, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Which covenant's that? Abrahamic, yes. You shall be my people, I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. Again, that's the land. What's that covenant? Maybe. Noahic. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and increase your fields so that you will never uh, need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. <sighs> Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all those who pass by, as it was in Ezekiel's time. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. That's nice. I don't know any garden that's like the Garden of Eden. I mean, there's some nice gardens around there, but, but like the Garden of Eden, that's pretty cool. And the wasted, desolate, ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are all are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it 
and I will do it. You see that refrain as well coming up in the prophets. Henebury paraphrase, God means what he says. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. Uh, So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is um, a, uh, bringing together a, um, a shepherd, David, Davidic covenant, the land and the blessing of Israel. Uh, notice the, Israel, the nations are taking notice. Okay, so Israel now is a light to the nations in this context because Israel's now regenerate, not the Mosaic covenant, therefore. Abrahamic covenant, there's something else, there's a new element brought in, which we're not going to deal with today. And then there's hints of the Noahic covenant there, which I will amplify more as we get there. One more text here, Malachi chapter 2, I think. Last book in, uh, yeah, last book in the Old Testament. Okay, chapter 2. Actually, no, chapter 3. I could do chapter 2, but I'm going to do chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that? John the Baptist, okay? Uh, I will tie this in uh, later on, but... Okay? And the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. The Lord is the messenger of the covenant. He's going to bring it now to fruition, I think. That's how I interpret that. In whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Well, this is not the first coming then. Because plenty of people endured the first coming of Christ. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Jesus definitely didn't do that in the first coming. And purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Why has... Why have the sons of Levi got to be regenerated so that they can offer offerings that are acceptable to God? Because of the priestly covenant. Do you see? There's more to it, but I hope you can see it's a long, I I took a long time to say it, but it's because of the priestly covenant. By the way, Ezekiel 37, if you want to see there at the end there, talks about the sanctuary. My sanctuary will be in their midst, the midst of Israel. That's the temple. Israel are not regenerate, have never been regenerate. They killed their own Messiah and they're not regenerate now. 
But they're going to be, according to these covenants, according to this picture. You say, well, what about the New Testament? What about the church? Well, never mind about that right now, because we're not there. Let's just get the picture of the Old Testament into our heads. Because that's the picture that all the Jews had when they heard Jesus. And that's the picture we want to have when we listen to him. Okay? Um, All right. Any questions on that so far? Uh, There was something else. Oh, yes. Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 deals with uh, that when they come to the land, they have to, uh, some of the, the tribes have to stand on Mount Ebal, and some of the tribes have to stand on Mount Gerizim, which are opposite each other, and they have to they shout out to each other blessings and curses of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, yes? You know, and if you do this, it's chapter 28 if you want to read it. Um, If you keep the covenant, you'll have all these blessings. If you don't, you get a whole slew of curses. And covenants often had that, particularly these, uh, you know, if it was a bilateral covenant. Even if it was a, um, uh, there was a slight imbalance and you had this this, uh, suzerain or king, God, in this case, over the vassals, Israel. Um, still, the vassals you know, had it coming if they broke the covenant. But uh, in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, we see uh, something else introduced here. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So this is a different covenant. In a sense, it's a different covenant uh, than the Mosaic covenant. But it, it covers the same ground. But it deals with something that's more particular. So let's just kind of read it. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. Uh, You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sion king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan came out against us to battle, and we conquered them, and we took their land and gave it to the inheritance of the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh. Therefore keep the words of this covenant, and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. And God's going to establish them in the land. And he quotes verse 13. He talks about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. What this covenant is about is after the 40 years of traipsing around the wilderness, 
um, it solemnizes what they're about to do. Do you see? It's not an everlasting covenant, it's a, it's a, but it's an agreement and it's a covenant that kind of focuses in on what they're about to do, particularly under Moses, uh, under Joshua. Um, now, some people, they call this the Palestinian covenant, okay, which is a bad name because Palestine wasn't named Palestine until Adrian named it Palestine in the second century A.D., um, so it's, it's, you can call it the land covenant but I hope you can see it doesn't say anything that the Abrahamic covenant says or doesn't say so you might as well say it's just a, re- a reiteration a reminder of a part the land part of the Abrahamic covenant which is the way I see it but I bring it to your attention because some scholars, they like to point it out as a different covenant. I, it's, it really doesn't matter to me because all of this stuff is in the uh, Abrahamic covenant, which is a unilateral and everlasting covenant. But what's interesting is um, verse in chapter 30, which continues. I'll just read you a little portion here. Verse um, 4, If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. You shall pr- uh, he shall prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And God puts the curses on your enemies. What's that promising? It's promising uh, a change of heart, a new birth, as it were, for the people. Just like we read in um, Ezekiel 36. Do you see that? But Ezekiel 36 is not talking about anything that happened from Ezekiel's time up to today. So think about this. This uh, prophecy in Deuteronomy 30 Obviously, Ezekiel is picking up on it, isn't he? But it hasn't happened yet, folks. The last thing that I want to cover tonight is uh, another role of the Mosaic Covenant. So... I've said, what, what's the Mosaic Covenant good for? Salvation? No. Setting them apart. Okay. So, setting Israel apart from the nations. Not to God. He didn't do that. <laughs> Should have done. 
but uh, it did set them apart from the nations. So, uh, the perpetuity aspect. What was the other bit? Yes, the, the what we call the cultic uh, system. Okay, the Levitical system. Okay, we have an approach to God, the Day of Atonement, and all that stuff. Without this, you couldn't have this. But there's a third thing also uh, that it does. Notice that the priestly covenant, whether you go to Numbers 18 or um, uh, Numbers 25, and I kind of bring those two things together. One of them is specially for uh, the line of Phineas, but we bring them together. Um, <clears throat> whether it's that, or it's this land, this reiteration of the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, or to just move ahead into uh, our next course, uh, the Davidic covenant. They're all under the auspices of the Mosaic covenant, aren't they? The Mosaic covenant, I mean, Israel's under the Mosaic covenant when the Phineatic or priestly covenant is given and when the Davidic covenant is given and the new covenant also when that's prophesied in uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So what does that mean? Does that create a problem? Because the Mosaic Covenant doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's, it's a failure as far as the Israel is concerned. God doesn't fail, but Israel does. Because it's bilateral, you know, it, it's a failure. So it has... We ha- it has this utility, but what about the fact that these other covenants are within the auspices of the Mosaic Covenant? Does that mean because they broke the Mosaic Covenant, that, that means that they also broke the Phineatic Covenant, or the, the Priestly Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant too? And so God doesn't have to deliver on these covenants. That's what's often taught but here we're not dealing with the Mosaic Covenant as a working covenant uh, for Israel being sanctified and being a people of God. Read Isaiah 1, read the book of Malachi and you'll see, uh, and Hosea and other places, you'll see Israel were not sanctified. Well, what it does is it acts as... Uh, again, this is the third utility. It acts as a placeholder for these covenants. Because there's perpetuity in Israel, do you see? And David is an Israelite and Phineas is an Israelite. I hope you can see that, that because it does this, it, it enables these other covenants which transcend the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant's temporal. The priestly covenant is everlasting. It, it transcends, it pushes out from the bounds of the Mosaic Covenant into further other bounds, the bounds of the kingdom, the bounds of the, the, uh, the, the branch of righteousness. And... Um, the same with, uh, with the Davidic covenant.
Do you see that? And this is absolutely necessary. Why is this necessary? Why is this necessary? That there's perpetuity. Think about David. Why is it absolutely necessary that there's perpetuity or continuity between David and Abraham and who else? Yes. Do you see? Without this, Christ has no claim. Do you see that? So write that down, maybe underline it, because we'll come back to that later on when we talk about um, Christ and his roles as it as uh, it starts to, to be illuminated more and more. Again, in the Pentateuch, Jesus is in the Pentateuch. We'll do some more about that next week in our closing uh, lesson. Sorry, but I think we've uh, got to where I wanted to be. Um, but um, I hope you can see the picture so far is of a deliverer. Um, somebody who's going to do God's work for him and get rid of Satan. Um, there is sacrificial aspects, so there are salvific aspects because of the cult system. Uh, we also have that very key element of uh, Abraham believing God and God accrediting, accrediting that belief, that trust, as righteousness in Genesis 15.6. That's a key element as well. Salvation is there through faith, by grace through faith. Noah also found grace in the eyes of the Lord. If Israel is going to um, continue, it's by grace that it continues, not because it obeys the law. But God will do that because Moses could appeal to the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see? And so the Mosaic Covenant stays in place to guarantee the outcome of those other covenants. Just as the Noahic Covenant is a placeholder for history for the outcome of all of the covenants. Do you see that? It kind of secures them, protects them. All right, any questions before we close? Okay, good. All right, so next week what we're going to do, we'll do some more about Jesus now that, that we'll, we'll kind of cover some of the ground. Um, we'll look at uh, my bet noir typology, which I don't like, but we'll talk a little bit about typology also. And then also what I want to do is I want to, if I remember, bring in some books of some other authors and quote to you. I mean, it, it, you might find it painfully boring, but I find it interesting. <laughs> but I do, why, do I, why am I doing it? Because I want to prove to you that I'm not just talking. I want to prove to you from these authors' own words that they do say what I say they say. 
And then from what you've learned, I want you to test them against what the covenants say. And so we'll be doing that next week as well, okay?